still there, please take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be continuing on in this two-part study on spiritual warfare. And like Mike had mentioned in the announcements next week, we're going to have uh, a time where we're going to uh, formally recognize and install uh, our new elder and our two new deacons. So really looking forward to that. And that's really just a culmination uh, of a lot of work and a lot of planning and a lot of thought and even... Uh, just a lot of vision in what we were hoping to see come about here at Windsor Christian Fellowship with a plurality of leadership, uh, with several who would be, be doing the leading in regard to the pastoral ministry as well as into uh, the deacons and so forth. So we're really excited as far as what God is doing in that. But this morning, continuing in Ephesians chapter 6. So the Ephesians, these people that Paul is writing to, and by the way, for some of you who might be new Christians, when you see a, a book of the Bible or a letter in the Bible, and it has a, a weird name at the top, it says Ephesians, or it says Colossians, or it says Philippians. What that is intending and, and meaning uh, is it's a group of people. So, for instance, in the book of Ephesians, these people are from a place called Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. So that's why it's called Ephesians, because it's written to these people who were the Ephesians. And so it's obvious that as Paul is writing this part of the letter, as he's closing up this letter to the Ephesians, he, he, it's very obvious that they need encouragement. They need encouragement regarding the strength that they stand in. They need encouragement regarding the spiritual warfare that is happening in Ephesus. I've mentioned it before, but I've been to Ephesus. Uh, I I went to Ephesus back in 2009 and got to walk around on the streets and and see where they're still digging things up and so forth. And, And you can see... Uh, the kinds of things that they were worshiping, the false gods and the temples and all the rest. And it's a, a pretty amazing sight. But they, it was very obvious that the spiritual nature of this great city in the Roman Empire was under siege by Satan. And so Paul is writing them and closing this letter to the Ephesians that you guys need to, to stand strong. You need to stand firm against the evil one, which we all looked at last week. Those first two points which you can find on the back of your bulletin this morning. The power in which we stand and then the perpetrator that we stand against. That grace, that great verse 10. You remember, you can look even down at it now. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. So when you consider strength in the Christian life, where does strength come from? It comes from the Lord. This is Paul's expectation that all of us, every Christian, the ones that he's writing to in Ephesus and even now 2,000 years later, his command to all of us under the inspiration of God is to stand firm in the strength of God. We noted that this is a command. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about what Paul has to say here. We are to stand strong in the Lord. But why do we need to stand strong? We don't need to stand strong if life isn't difficult. We don't need to stand strong if Satan isn't an actual enemy. But we do need strength because Satan is our enemy and life is difficult. But we come this morning to really the specific application of the power. Where does this power come from? So how how do we know that we're standing in God's strength? That's kind of a hard thing to differentiate sometimes, isn't it? Are are we doing something in our own strength, in our own power, or are we doing something in God's strength and in God's power? And quite simply, I think the application that Paul is getting at is this. If you're standing in the power of God when you're standing in the armor of God, okay? So we'll look at the armor a little later, but 
Paul, I think, is saying that you know you're standing in the power of God when you're standing in the armor of God, which is where we will begin today. So the power with which we stand, the perpetrators that we stand against, and now the provisions that we stand in. I think it's funny to look back at pictures of sporting events from 40, 50, or 60 years ago to see the kind of equipment that the athletes would wear. So I'm going to expose some of you right now, your age. How many of you can remember when hockey players played without helmets? Yeah, yeah, all right. You can remember that. Expose some more age, maybe. So, so for instance, the hockey illustration. So anybody signed before 1979 didn't have to wear a helmet. So the last guy to wear a helmet was like the mid-90s. So a lot of us probably can remember that. But what about baseball? How many of you can remember when a baseball player didn't have to wear a helmet when he was up to bat? Really? Incredible. So when you look back and you see the kinds of things that they wore or that they didn't wear, don't you kind of marvel? Even the discussion you know, nowadays with the NFL and, and helmets and concussions and all the rest, and you see a picture of football from 80 years ago and they got this little leather helmet on their head. You can imagine the kind of brain damage they would have had back then. Or you, you, you see pictures like in 1970 when Bobby Orr scored the goal, right? And he's flying through the air after he scores that winning goal in the 1970 Stanley Cup. Anybody with me? You know what picture I'm talking about? He's flying through the air. He doesn't have the helmet on. And after he scores, everybody jumps around him and they all don't have helmets on. And so it's pretty amazing when you look back at the kinds of provisions that they had or that they didn't have. Nowadays, they have equipment that better protects them from the various dangers of the sport. And to a much greater degree, spiritually speaking, we have all been giving a, a, an incredible set of provisions that protect us from the dangers in our Christian lives. And so the question that I have for you this morning as we begin, is are you sitting here with your armor on? From from the youngest Christian in our body to the oldest Christian in our body, are you sitting here with your armor on? If we were given eyes to spiritually see, and we could look around the room at one another, would there be pieces of the armor missing? Would there be those among us who are totally unprepared for the battle that we are in. Totally unprepared to face the wiles of the devil. Totally unprepared to stand against evil. Are you sitting here in this place where we gather each week as a local unit of the Lord's army? Are you sitting here with your armor on? You see another command in verse 11. Look there with me. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. But then further down in verse 13, the command again... Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So the first thing I want you to notice about these provisions, about this equipment that God has given to us, about this armor, before we get to the helmet and the shield and all of that, is that this is an armor that is not our own. This armor is not our own. This is the armor of God. 
In other words, this is not the armor that you need to go out and somehow purchase. This is not an armor that you need to go out and to attain to do enough good works. And the more good you do, the more pieces of the armor that you're given. That's not it at all. This is God's armor that He alone dispenses to everybody whom He makes a believer. So there's no need for arrogance. Each of us have the same equipment available to us. So there's never a need for arrogance. Even as church leaders, we don't have any more provisions than the youngest saved child in our church. We are all given the same equipment and equipment that is not our own. And when we're standing in an armor that is not our own, it will be very obvious to you. Back in Isaiah 59, which was written hundreds of years before the passage before us today, it says this, He, the Lord, put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. So this is an armor that is not our own. This is an armor that actually goes back all the way to Isaiah, brings up the armor. And Paul is kind of building off that a little bit here this morning. So this is God's armor. This is an armor that has been battle-tested. And so we stand like David did. You remember David when he went out to battle Goliath and Saul takes his armor and he puts it on to David. And so David is standing there in an armor that is not his own. But in a positive way, we stand in an armor that is not our own, which gives confirmation to the armor's durability, to its strength. And it gives us assurance that the armor that we go into battle with is exactly what we need. But verse 13 tells us the purpose for the armor. Earlier in the text, we noted the strength to stand against evil. And here, stated just a little differently, we need the armor to, in order to stand in the evil day. And what exactly is the evil day? He almost makes it sound like it's future, but I think he's referencing the present age. In the book of Ephesians, he's actually already referenced, uh, he said, redeeming the time for the days are evil. And I think he's corresponding still with that. I think that's still in his mind, that the present day is evil. But notice the hope that we have in standing in the evil day. Verse 13 again. That you may be able, he says, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day. Put on the whole armor of God and you'll be able to stand against the evil one and his forces. But I think the opposite is also true. If you leave off the armor, you're not going to be able to stand in the evil day. You're not going to be able to stand against the evil one. We talked about this a little bit last week. But why are so many Christians falling over and over again? I think a good diagnostic would be Ephesians 6. Are you standing in the armor? Why are you failing? Because you're standing in a battle without your armor on against the most wicked enemy that the world has ever known with your own even internal struggles and sin problems. And so you're standing in a battle essentially naked. No protection of God's armor. No strength from the Lord. And so Satan starts throwing his darts and shooting his darts and they ping against us and our soul absorbs them. Again, we need to be clear, when we fail in life, like we noted last week, it's not God's problem. So when we fail, it's not as though God has failed us. It's not as though His armor is able to fail. It is because we have failed. So we bear in mind the importance of this. It is God's armor. It is the armor that will enable victory. It is the armor that has been battle-tested by Him, and it has been given to us by Him. 
as Paul is writing this letter and he begins to reflect on the armor of God, he's sitting in a Roman prison. So having certainly been around many Roman soldiers, transported around by Roman soldiers, having interacted with them pretty extensively, even within the prison, he begins to draw from that inspiration of the Roman soldiers that are around him and write about what a soldier of Christ wears like what a Roman soldier would wear. So verse 14, he says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Again, he uses that word stand. And how do we stand? We stand in the strength of God. Who do we stand against? The forces of the devil. And what do we stand in? We stand in his armor. And the first thing that he says in regard to the armor is the belt of truth that is around our waist. So a belt is not just for decoration. It's not for style. The belt has an actual purpose. It's to be fastened and to be buckled and firmly holding us. I think the King James says, gird up your loins. And that's kind of the idea there with the belt of truth. Is there anything more relative than truth today? We live in a time where truth is debatable. You think about that. That truth is debatable. There was a Times Magazine article that came out uh, 51 years ago on April 8th, 1966. So just about 51 years ago with the title in big red letters, Is God Dead? Is God Dead? That was 51 years ago. Just coming out April 3rd of this year, they're coming out with a magazine with the same style, big red letters, the same look on the front of the magazine. And it says, Is Truth Dead? And isn't it a real tell of our society? That 51 years ago, they're pondering and questioning, is God dead? And then what's naturally going to follow that? Is truth dead? Everything has become a a what does this mean to you subject. Nothing is hard and fast. Even consider historical events, and that's where you get the idea of revisionist history, where historical events are now up for grabs. Or you think of biological realities. All of it is like nailing jello to the wall to have any sort of dependable fact in the world, not the least of which is religion or the Bible. To believe in the Bible, to believe in the gospel, to believe in God at all has become a joke. It's almost like you're a Neanderthal if you believe in some sort of God. But isn't this... But this isn't new. You remember when Jesus was standing before Pilate. And let me actually read for you what happened in John 18. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? So the way, the truth, and the life was standing before him. And Pilate looks at Jesus and says, what is truth? Jesus says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Well, whose truth? God's truth. In Christ, who is truth? Jesus says again, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. John chapter 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glorious over the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Friends, if we're going to stand in the truth, we need to know what the truth is. And John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them in the truth. What is truth? Your word is truth. We need to believe it. 
We need to live it. We need to fight for it. And we need to be sure that it is God's truth that is tightly wrapped around our waist like a belt and not our own truth. Let me remind you, this is the armor of God. This is the truth that He wraps about your waist. And we need to be sure that we are following it, having it fastened there. As firm as the truth of God is, the belt of truth should be fastened about our waist. And if we are to consciously and prayerfully put on the armor each day, how important is it to be sure that the belt of truth is fastened about our waist? That before we enter into the world and begin to hear all of the falsehoods that are there, how important is it to begin the day being sure and rooted in the truth? So the belt of truth, the second piece of armor, is the breastplate of righteousness. There's a lot of discussion as to what Paul means by righteousness here. Does he mean the, the imputed righteousness that he gives to you as a follower of Christ? Or is he talking about the ethical or the virtuous righteous deeds that you and I do, that, that he works through us? And I think, I think the accurate one is the latter. So I think he's talking about the ethical or the virtuous righteousness that he works in us. So that, that God works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure by his spirit. He is sanctifying us, making us more and more like Christ. And so as he does that, he brings about more and more good works through us. You think of even the end of Ephesians chapter 2, the good works that he has already prepared for us to walk in. And all of this is supported again by God's strength. We need to realize, and I would argue that this is a a huge part of understanding even what it means to be a Christian, and even what it means when we do good works, that it is actually God who is bringing about those good works through us. So that it's not our own ability to do good. It's God's great ability to bring about good through broken vessels like you and me. And so I wonder, with all of us, is God using us? Is God using you? Answer that question in your mind. Is God using you? And in what ways is He using you? Is He growing this church through you? Is He growing you? Is He causing your hands to serve? Is it obvious that as you go throughout the week, that you are wearing a breastplate of righteousness? I don't know too much about battle, but I can only assume the importance of a breastplate in a first century battle. I mean, I suppose the modern day equivalent is like a bulletproof vest. You can imagine the swords and the arrows and the daggers and everything flying around in a first century battle. And the breastplate would protect you from those things. And in the same way, the breastplate of righteousness, God working righteous good through you, is going to serve as a protectant for you as you head into the battle. The third piece, according to Paul, is that our feet are shod or prepared with the gospel. Look at verse 15. As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. We kind of forget sometimes how important our shoes are, right? Put your shoes on every day. But if you were going to go hike Katahdin, hopefully you wouldn't do it barefoot. I can guarantee you there's people who hike Katahdin barefoot. But hopefully you wouldn't. And you would put on hiking shoes. Good shoes, they have good grip so you don't lose your footing. And we lose our footing so often in life because we don't have a good grasp on the gospel. Paul's expectation is that our feet are shod, that they're prepared with the gospel with a readiness as well. 
So if we don't have a good grasp of the gospel, then there's going to be an extreme issue within our life. He says to stand several times in this passage. And how are you going to stand if your footing is not right? If your feet are not prepared? If you don't have the right stuff on your feet? You won't be able to stand... Uh, to, to, to stand against the devil, first, if you do not have the gospel, and second, if your grip on it is elementary. The gospel, the simple message that Christ came to earth, he died on the cross, he was buried, he rose again, and he ascended, all of that is obviously important. It, it, it's, it's not something that you believe when you're a brand new Christian and then move on from. But the gospel is elementary in that it can be understood by children. But the gospel must become bigger and broader and more beautiful as we grow older and we mature in the faith. Like some of you who may have uh, something you enjoy to look at. Maybe you have a favorite kind of car that you, classic car that you like to look at. And when you are walking at the show, the car show, and you see your favorite car, you don't just look at it from one angle. You, You walk around the car, you take the hood up, you look under the hood, you crawl underneath, you look underneath the car, you want to see that 1967 Chevelle in all of its glory, in all of its beauty. Have you ever seen a Chevelle? That's sweet. <laughs> but that's what you want, and that's what we should do with the gospel. That we take the gospel and we look at it more and more, and as we mature, we gain an understanding of it so that we can see its intricacies more and more beautifully see Christ as beautiful in his death and in his resurrection so as we mature we we look more and more deeply at it we don't just look at it from one angle that maybe when we were saved and then move away no we we constantly keep our gaze upon the gospel it is of utmost importance to the christian and paul says that our feet must be ready with the gospel paul also says in romans 10 quoting the old testament How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, who preach the gospel. So do you have a sure-footedness in the gospel? Are you sure about it? Do you understand it? And if you do, do you preach it? Again, there's that readiness involved in preaching the gospel. Let me insert this. You can't preach the gospel if you're unfamiliar with the gospel. We were just talking about this at our men's gathering yesterday afternoon at lunch. Being prepared with the gospel and understanding the gospel enough so that you can share it. You won't be ready to preach the gospel if you don't prepare for the chance that it could happen at any moment. And even wonder, when was the last time that any of us have given the gospel to an unbeliever? Have you ever given the gospel to an unbeliever? Paul says in Romans 10 there, how will they hear without a preacher? There used to be an old adage, you just go around all the time, and it was attributed to Francis of Assisi, but I don't think he said it. But anyway, it was, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. I think it's a bad quotation, because the gospel demands words. Somebody is not just going to look at your life and say, wow, they just seem so happy. I think I just want to be like them. Or, or I, I think that they just seem like such an ethical person. I'm, I'm just going to go do it. No, because there's plenty of people who are ethical. There's plenty of people who are quote unquote good. But what they need to be told is the gospel. Paul says, how will they hear without a preacher? That implies words. In order for the gospel to go forward, in order for the kingdom of God to expand, the gospel must be preached. You must be able and willing and ready to tell your family and friends about the gospel. None of us here 
are without family members in need of Christ. Some of you have adult children, grandparents, aunts, uncles, siblings, that if they should die tonight, they would open their eyes in hell. When are you going to tell them about the beautiful gospel that you hold precious? Have you prepared yourself enough with the gospel to to know it and to be able to deliver it to somebody? You you might be here this morning and you don't get the gospel. Again, it's so simple that a child can believe it, but so expansive that theologians have studied it for generations and generations and we haven't even scratched the surface of it yet. That Jesus in all of his glory comes down and he's born of a virgin, lives a perfect life for people who cannot live perfectly. That none of us are perfect. And so we needed a perfect substitute, a a spotless lamb to be put in place on our behalf. And then that spotless lamb was killed for us. And we couldn't die for ourselves and atone for ourselves. We needed somebody else to do it for us. And so that's what Jesus comes and He does. And by trusting and believing in Him, in His righteousness, that is not your own, but believing in a righteousness that He has won, that is what is beautiful. That is what is glorious. Knowing that we as humans are pathetic and broken and we struggle and we need a perfect substitute to stand In our place, when you trust and believe in Jesus, you stand righteous before God, although you have committed so much wrong, and you are given the confident expectation in this life that you will enter into glory. Friends, are your feet prepared with the gospel? Verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So notice that. Notice those first three words. In all circumstances. In all circumstances, you need the shield of faith. You need faith. Friends, you don't, you don't just need faith to move mountains. You need faith the second your feet hit the floor in the morning. In all circumstances, you need the shield of faith. Notice what the shield of faith is good for in verse 16. Extinguishing All the flaming darts of the evil one. The darts, the missiles, the arrows of the evil one. Remember, the world is a war zone and the arrows are flying. Notice that he doesn't say that when you take up the shield of faith, that you'll have a pretty good shot of handling the arrows of the devil. But that you will be able to handle all of Satan's flaming darts. The Apostle Peter gets at this idea in 1 Peter. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Faith is a fundamental requirement for standing against the devil. It is a necessity for extinguishing the flaming arrows that Satan and his forces are shooting, which obviously implied is that Satan is taking aim at you. Like I mentioned last week, Satan is out playing hardball. There's no easy pitches. He's slinging arrows, aiming right at you. A direct threat. Which is why it's imperative to hold up that shield, to have that protection. And that protection is faith. You might be wondering what these arrows that Satan might be slinging, what are these arrows that Paul is referring to, and I think that they really could be just about anything. That's pretty open-ended. But one commentator said these arrows could be ungodly behavior, doubt, despair, 
persecution, false teaching, all of which are to be taken very seriously and not lightly. Satan is going to keep on slinging arrows at you because there's always that possibility where we're standing with our guard down. His arrows hit their mark against those who are not standing with the shield of faith. I mean, you even look through the Bible and you, see, you think of all of the saints of old. You go through Hebrews chapter 11 and you see that hall of faith. And it goes uh, 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 person after person after person. And what they had done, that was a faithful and good thing that God worked through him. But what you also see throughout the Old Testament is all of the struggle. You think of Abraham, his lying, right? His lying to the Egyptians. Or his getting his, his wife's maid servant pregnant instead of his wife. Or consider Noah before him getting drunk and embarrassed after the flood. Or David killing Uriah and committing adultery. And Samson and all his struggles. And on and on you go throughout the Old Testament with so many who did not have that shield of faith up. And they were absorbing all of those arrows. So many. That if their faith were evident, if that shield was up, they would have withstood against Satan. And it's the same with us. So if you do not take up the shield of faith for protection, you will be pierced. Next, the helmet of salvation. I'm not going to take too much time here, but the helmet of salvation is evident of someone who is living as a Christian. Somebody who lives in light of the fact that they are in Christ. And this is true of us. How then are we living? Are we living as one who has been saved? Well, saved from what? Saved from the kingdom of darkness. Saved from our sins. Saved from hell. Saved from Satan. Verse 17. And take that helmet of salvation. Then he moves on quickly and says, And the sword of the Spirit. So take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And the last provision that he gives to us. So the sword, when you consider the word of God, the sword is really the only offensive weapon that he has given us. So the devil uses flaming arrows and we use a sword. The sword that we use takes us back to that concept back in verse 12 of wrestling, that that close hand-to-hand kind of battle. You can imagine again how horrific the battle would have been in those days. You're going up to somebody with a sword and shoving it into them, watching the life leave their eyes so close. And the seriousness transfers over spiritually. That we should be doing serious battle against the forces of evil in our lives and in our church and in our world by wielding the great sword that we have been giving and watching the wicked life leave as that sword does its work. I love what Spurgeon says about God's word. The word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let a lion loose and the lion will defend itself. Friends, it's time to let the lion loose. To wield the sword. To stop pandering. To stop apologizing for what the Bible says. To stop being hesitant to declare its truth to your family and friends. Set the Bible free. It stands totally on its own. The testimony of the scriptures is clear. You consider 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, the scriptures are breathed out by God and profitable to fight against wickedness in ourselves and in others. It equips us for good work. So you you want to see Satan scamper, get acquainted with the scriptures. Many of you know this verse in Psalm 119.11. 
Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. The word of God in our hearts memorized has the ability to fight against sin. Or Hebrews 4. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The sword is sharp. It's what we need. It's more powerful than we can understand. Let me insert this here, that the Christian church in America is incredibly deficient in Bible knowledge. We don't know the Bible, rendering it almost useless in our hands. It's almost as though every generation of Christians loses more and more Bible knowledge or or a hold on the Bible. Even think throughout history, it gets lost in the Middle Ages, right? And then it gets recovered in the Protestant Reformation. It gets lost again, and then it gets recovered in the Great Awakening. It gets lost again, and then it gets recovered in the early 1900s with Bible conferences and the creation of Bible institutes and, and, and conservative theology and so on. And now it's lost again. And when is it going to get recovered? When are we going to thirst for God's Word as His church again? I think I said this before too, but I read somewhere that 20 years ago, a committed Christian was somebody who attended worship or Bible study three times a week. Now a committed Christian is considered someone who attends three times a month. Which for many of us, in our Christian experience from only 20 years ago, we've gone from attending service or study where we dive into God's Word to learn, we've gone from attending something like 12 times a month down to three or four times a month. Losing hours and hours of preaching and Bible study. What about our children? Particularly if they're not receiving the word of God at home like they need to. It is not going to do for our children to be exposed to the world as much as they are. And then come to church on Sunday morning, color a picture of Abraham, and then expect them to turn out like the kind of Christian that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. Lack of attendance to worship and Bible study isn't necessarily what I'm addressing here as much as what it seems as though the underlying problem is. That the reason we're not hearing the Bible taught as much in our lack of attendance in our worship and studies is probably more reflective of the fact that we don't personally take in the Bible at home for personal worship, for family worship. So the, the attendance thing is, is one thing. It's the underlying problem that is probably why those other things are not intact. Really only a symptom of the greater problem. So how is that going to change? If our offensive weapon is the word of God and we don't really know the word of God, then how are we going to play offense? We need to get into the world. Or not into the world. We need to get into the Bible. We need to avail ourselves to Bible study. This is why in both Sunday school for the kids and junior church, they get straight Bible. And as they grow older and older, it just gets deeper and deeper as they learn. This is why we are beginning that midweek Bible study here in April at the Shermans. This is why uh, we're beginning plans in the month of May of starting a class here at the church that will be purposed to be very intensive and in depth. This is why you need to be reading the word at home. This is why husbands, according to Paul, need to be washing your wife with the word of God. This is why you need to be having family worship at home. We have to know the word of God. 
if we're going to have any chance in the war, it is the piece of armor that we play offense with and we must know how to wield the sword. And so the power in which we stand is God's power. The perpetrators that we stand against are Satan and his forces. The provisions that we are given is the armor of God. And then finally, praying at all times. Verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Here's Paul calling himself an ambassador in chains. This is not a nice prison in the USA. This would not have been a great place for him to be bound in chains, he says. Pray for me, not that I can get out of here quickly, but that I may be bold and speak boldly as I ought to speak. He says to pray at all times, to make requests. That's what the word supplications would mean, to make requests. At the same time, keep alert with all perseverance. Be what the disciples should have been in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus went off to pray. Be alert. Be prayerful. Make requests for saints. Make requests for those saints and the leaders of the saints to proclaim the gospel. In each of these pieces of the armor, what do you see? When you put on your clothes in the morning or when you go and you buy clothes, you look at the tag and it tells you who made or who designed that Clothing. It has the fingerprint of the maker. And so does our armor. It is the armor of God. The truth is the truth of God. The righteousness is the righteousness of God. The gospel is the gospel of God. The faith is faith from God. The salvation is God's salvation. The word is God's word. It is all attributed to him because he is their designer and maker. Which demonstrates for us how lost we would be without God. If it weren't for him, if it weren't for this armor, Ephesians 2 verse 4, but God, if it weren't for God and his truth and righteousness and gospel and faith and salvation and word, you would still be back in the beginning of Ephesians 2, following after your passions, following after the flesh, following after Satan. But God saved you and he gave you this armor. You think of even a bride. She puts on her dress She has something borrowed, new, blue, and old, something like that. And all the detail that has gone to make her look as beautiful as she looks. And you you step back and you take in the sight of the bride and you can see it all. You can see her in her beauty. And upon putting on the armor, understanding what it is, understanding where it all came from, you step back and you see a soldier standing there Not in his own armor, but in God's armor. You see the truth that is about his waist. You see the breastplate of righteousness. You see the helmet on his head. You see his feet shod with the gospel. You see the word of God in his hands. And when you step back and you look in the mirror of God's word, do you see yourself standing there in the armor of God? Do you see these spiritual accoutrements, the spiritual equipment in your life? Imagine a soldier in a battle without a sword. He'd have nothing to fight with. Without a breastplate, he'd be pierced. Without the right footwear, he wouldn't be able to stand or no helmet, and his head would be crushed. But like a good general, our God has not left us unprotected. 
We consider the old song, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. Stand in His strength alone. The arm of flesh, your own arm, it'll fail you. You dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armor, each piece put on with prayer. Where duty calls or danger, be never wanting there. Are you prayerfully standing in God's strength against God's enemies, in God's armor, for God's glory? Thank you, Lord, for this armor, and we thank you for your word that lays it out for us. And we're thankful to know that this armor is not our own, that it's not our own strength that we stand against the wiles of the devil, but in your own strength, in your own armor. And we pray, Lord, that as we do this this week, that as our feet hit the ground tomorrow morning and our eyes open, that we look to you from where our help comes and pray for that armor, to to be conscious of the fact that we're being faithful, to be conscious of the gospel, of our salvation, and our righteous deeds, Lord, that you work through us. Lord, I pray that you'll get all the glory for what you do in and through us. We're thankful again for these words. In Christ's name, amen.